have a Bible, let's turn to James chapter 4. If you had to summarize the Christian life, what would you say that it's all about? Perhaps you're not a Christian, and you've come seeking to answer that very question. What's the Christian life all about? Over the centuries, the church has used a phrase that sums up the Christian life rather well. It's a Latin phrase. Perhaps you've heard of it. Corum Deo. It means in the presence of God or before the face of God. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Jesus Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Being with God is the goal of the gospel. The Christian life is about living before the face of God, through the Son of God, to the glory of God. We might say that James directs our attention to this reality in verses 5 to 10, where we see that God gives more grace to those who walk humbly before Him. Let's read it together. Let's read together the inspired Word of God, beginning in verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Father, I do ask that you would use this passage to humble us as your children before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Two weeks ago, we looked at the heart of conflict and the hope of God's grace. All of us experience destructive conflict, uh, fights, arguments, Uh, Friction, disunity, anger. That conflict we saw comes from the the wayward passions inside of us. Uh, We want something so badly that we will sin in order to get it. And these passions we saw disrupt our, our fellowship with each other, and they disrupt our fellowship with God. God even compares it to spiritual adultery in verse 4. And then in verse 5, we see that His jealousy demands our exclusive faithfulness to Him. He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. But we have forsaken Him for lesser pleasures. And when when this vertical relationship with God is broken... When our, when our passion for God is, is weak and our view of God is, is warped, that vertical problem then wreaks havoc in our horizontal relationships with others. We get angry and we argue and we get impatient mainly because something is wrong in our relationship with God. We have forgotten Corum Deo, living before the face of God. 
So first things first, if we're going to progress toward peace and toward patience and toward unity and toward order in all of these horizontal relationships and, in, and do it in ways that brings God glory, we need to address this relationship first. Our relationship with God. We cannot love others truly unless we love God and unless we are humbly admitting our need and drawing from His grace day by day. And I want us to begin there with God's grace because everything else we'll look at today is building upon it. Okay, and in four verses there are ten commands. Rattle off a bunch of commands today and ten imperatives, ten actions that we must take as believers. But we must be careful to note that every command comes from a God who gives more and more and more grace so that we can obey those commands. But He gives more grace, verse 6 says. Then He quotes a proverb from the Old Testament. That's Proverbs 3, verse 34. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So again, God is giving grace to the humble. If you go back and read Proverbs 3, you find a particular person portrayed. Uh, the wise person, actually, who, who walks humbly before his God. Uh, Proverbs 3 portrays the person who walks humbly before God. His trust isn't in himself, but in the Lord. He bends his will to do God's will. He doesn't think too highly of himself. His life and his possessions, they, they belong wholly to God. He walks with God as a son, walks in glad submission to his father who loves him. In other words, the reason, why, the reason God opposes the proud is that they're the ones that do not submit to him. They do not trust in Him. They do not bring Him glory with their attitudes. They, they think they're all that. They refuse to live for His kingdom. They despise His discipline. They don't walk with Him as a son walks with his father. God must oppose them because He alone is worthy of all our attention and adoration. But for those who humble themselves before Him, to those who, as Proverbs 3 says, who do, who do not lean on their own understanding. To those who fear the Lord and turn away from evil. To those who aren't wise in their own estimation. To those who receive His discipline. God is happy to give more grace to produce the faithfulness He requires of them. He loves giving grace to the humble because the humble are a stage on which God gets to display His power and His provision. So these commands are not divorced from grace. They're rooted in grace and they're given for more grace. So what does it look like to, hum to, hum to walk humbly before God and position ourselves to receive more grace. That's the connection between verses 6 and 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Remember, whenever you see a therefore, ask yourself what it's there for. Good. The connection is this. Because God gives more grace to the humble, the appropriate response is for all of us to humble ourselves before the Lord. What does that look like? Number one. We submit to God's rule while resisting the devil's schemes. We submit to God's rule while resisting the devil's schemes. I've, I've grouped these ten commands thematically. Okay, they seem to, to fit together into three main groups, with each group also having a gracious promise from God. And the first one is this. We submit to God's rule while resisting the devil's Schemes. You might call it two sides of the same coin. First thing he says is submit yourselves to God. 
This is a remarkable command because submission to God is not a natural thing for us. In Adam, we're naturally rebels. Uh, Romans 8, 7 says that apart from grace, we cannot submit to God's will. We can't do this on our own. But when we trust in Christ, the new Adam, grace so transforms us that we can submit to God's will. This command is to the believer, the one who God has brought forth by the word of truth, according to chapter 1, verse 18. And submission to God simply means this. We acknowledge His authority and order our lives according to His revealed will in Scripture. We acknowledge His authority and we order our lives according to His revealed will in Scripture. Submission is a very active thing. I remember working in high school as a welder's helper. Part of being a welder's helper isn't just waiting on him to tell me what to do. Submission was so learning that welder and how he operates that I knew what I was supposed to do. I knew his will for me in whatever project we came to because I knew him. I knew what he had told me and what he had taught me before. I knew how deep to cut, how smooth to grind, how close to put the ladder, what to hand him next. Same here. We, we order our lives around God and what we have seen about God in this book. The world will tell you that that is slavery. The Bible says that it's freedom. True freedom is the freedom to live as we were created to live under our maker. True freedom is being able to do what you ought to do as his image bearer. That freedom only comes through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I remember also attending a, a church service one night in College Station. This, this young man came forward. Uh, he, was bar- he was part of a gang. And this gang wore colors. A blue bandana was tied around his arm. But the Lord had saved him. And he was there to tell the church about Jesus' work in his life. And when he finished his testimony, he took the bandana off his arm and he held it out and he dropped it. If you know the hold a gang has on your life, you know that was a bold move. That was a big statement. What he was saying was that his allegiance now belonged to the Lord Jesus. God's word was now going to rule his life. Listen. When you profess faith in Jesus Christ and you identified with him in baptism, you drop your colors. And you took up Jesus's colors. He is your king. We submit to him. We order our lives around him and what he tells us to do here in the word. He also says, resist the devil. This is wartime language. And, uh, and actually, our, our fighter verse used it a couple of weeks ago. Fighter verses are memory verses that are there weekly for you in the e-news, in the, in the worship guide. But Ephesians 6.13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand or resist in the evil day. 
So there's no room for apathy here or you will die in this fight. But what does it mean? What does it look like to resist? It means you stay alert to the devil's schemes and oppose whatever he does or says that leads you astray from God and the truth of his gospel. You stay alert to the devil's schemes and oppose whatever he does or says to lead you astray from God and the truth of his gospel. And I say oppose whatever he says or does because his schemes are so many. And it may surprise you how close to home they can be. For example, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Have you ever considered that anger, without swift resolution and forgiveness, leaves you vulnerable to the devil's attacks? Resistance, what does resistance look like in that moment? Resistance looks like getting to the heart of your anger problem, reconciling swiftly, and not giving the devil, the devil an opportunity to wreak havoc in your relationships. So this resistance is, again, very active. Well, let's take 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. The church uh, disciplines somebody, and it looks like the guy repents. And so Paul tells them, all right, he repented. You go, and you comfort him. You reaffirm your love for him, unless he becomes overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So that we wouldn't be outwitted by Satan. Resistance looks like forgiving that man as God in Christ forgave you. It looks like getting off your high horse and reconciling with your wife or your brother or your friend or your church and bearing with one another in love. Or Jesus says that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. So he, he twists the truth. Sometimes he even does that through false teachers in the church. He skews the truth with nice-sounding people who are really teaching the doctrine of demons. How do we resist that? By confronting his lies with the truth and with the clarity of God's Word. Right? By, by teaching sound doctrine and rebuking those who contradict it. The devil also tempts us morally, for instance. He tempts us with sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 7 Verses 5 and 9, resist. what does resistance look like there? It's, you take every measure you can, you cut off hands, you gouge out eyes, as Jesus said. It's this, there's this vigilance, getting it out. You're not using your iPhone and Netflix inappropriately and getting an internet filter and bringing your sin into the light and then getting brothers and sisters to walk with you. Close accountability. If you're married, resistance looks like not neglecting each other in marital intimacy. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 5. James also said in chapter 3, verse 15, that jealousy and selfish ambition are of demonic origins. Wow, something as common as jealousy. 
doing things from selfish motives. Paul says they come from demonic origins. James, rather. We resist those things by replacing jealousy with contentment in God. And thanksgiving for his good gifts. Not just to you, but to the person you might be jealous over. Replacing those selfish ambitions with gospel ambitions that spread Jesus' glory instead of your own. The devil tempts us with the fear of death, Hebrews 2 says. How do we resist the fear that he provokes through threats and terrorism? We've got a lot of that going on. With faith in Jesus' resurrection. Through his death, Hebrews 2 says, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and Jesus delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So we resist by resting, by resting confidently in Jesus' resurrection victory. I'm just scratching the surface here. But what I want you to see is that the devil's schemes are numerous. They come from all kinds of directions. And resistance is quite practical. It's not this magical thing full of all kinds of man-made formulas. It is very much moral and concrete and relational. It works itself out through believing the truth and choosing the moral path that God approves of and relating to others in grace and forgiveness and love and praying for God's power to protect us from evil. But please note something here with this two-sided coin, submission to God, resisting the devil. Our fight of faith cannot stop with just resisting evil. It must also wholeheartedly embrace what is good. It cannot stop with just getting devils out, so to speak, but ensuring that Christ is within. It cannot stop with sin management, but it presses forward with passionate pursuit of God. And of course we see this in our Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? This both submission wholeheartedly to God and without sin, and resisting the devil. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he not only resisted the devil's schemes successfully, he resisted those schemes to do what God had asked of him. And by doing both, both resisting the devil and submitting to God, he saved us. He overcame where Adam and Eve failed. He didn't win the nations by bowing to the serpent's lies. He won the nations by crushing the serpent beneath his feet with a bloody cross and resurrection power. And for all who join him by faith, he gave us hope that God will soon crush Satan under our feet too. Romans 16, 20. That's why the gracious promise is, and the devil will flee from you. That's the promise here. That doesn't mean your life will be smooth without any more temptations. We even see that in Jesus' resistance. The devil fled until another opportune time. His influence will remain until Jesus finally casts him into the lake of fire. What the devil fleeing does mean, though, is this. As we stand firm, we make known to him that in Jesus, he has no claim on our lives. He has no power over us. He can do nothing, ultimately, to separate us from him. He must retreat again and again and again. Why? Because Jesus died and rose again. And he who is in you, namely Christ, 
is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. Number two, we draw near to God while forsaking impure deeds and desires. We draw near to God while forsaking impure deeds and desires. This is part of living Coram Deo, before the face of God. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God, and as a result, He will draw near to you. When you look at people drawing near to God in the Old Testament, it was often associated with prayer and service in His presence. Uh, someone might even uh, draw near, like this, like Psalm 73. They might draw near to God, looking for help and safety in time of need. But any time people drew near to God rightly, it was based on the revelation of Himself to them. And James has similarly developed the way we draw near to God in, in his letter already. And two of the main things he mentions is prayer and the Word. Prayer, that's chapter 1, verse 5, asking God for wisdom. The Word, chapter 1, verse 21, receiving with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. We cultivate fellowship with God through prayer that is grounded in God's prior revelation to us in the Word. And we need to hear this. We, we cannot expect change and vitality in our lives without communion with God. Many of us want change. We, you know, we want greater boldness in evangelism. We want more gentleness in our speech. We want deeper love for each other. We want more patience with our children, perhaps. We want anger to be gone from us. We want no more laziness and excessive time wasted on entertainment. We, we may even want to feel God's smile. But a big problem is that very often we want these things without any willingness to draw near to God in prayer and the Word. No communion with God means no change for God. We cannot expect God to draw near to us if we don't care to live near to Him. Nobody drifts into fellowship with God. You ever drifted into fellowship with God? No way! Nobody drifts into fellowship with God. We must act in drawing near to Him in prayer and the Word, whether that's alone or with the church, like in this setting. We're drawing near to God. We've prayed. We're in the Word There's nothing more important in your day than cultivating fellowship with God. Nothing. But we also need to see this. Drawing near to God carries a moral response to His holy presence and His revealed will. James says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. The experience of God's presence produces profound moral transformation. Paul is on the same page in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through the first part of, verse, of chapter 7. Listen to what Paul says. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a, a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then Paul concludes this. Since we have these promises, meaning since God is dwelling with us in Christ, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So the nearness of God effects moral change, moral transformation, the pursuit of holiness. Drawing near means getting rid of all that doesn't belong in God's presence. It's kind of like when you get married. There's a lot of things you probably had, single, that you didn't bring into your marriage. I had a stuffed bobcat, like a real bobcat, stuffed. That didn't come into the marriage. I had to go home with my parents. It's wrong. It's, it's not good. It's not fitting for this context anymore. And my four plates... had four. I liked my plates. There's lots of things. Or what I spent my time on and who I spent my time with. There are things that change once you're married. Same thing. You draw near to God means getting rid of all the stuff that doesn't belong in His presence. James mentions cleansing hands and purifying hearts. In the context of his letter, this seems to illustrate the cleansing of, of the whole person. Okay, James, remember, is about faith in the heart producing outward deeds. That's what I think is going on here. The hands, the outward deeds, your actions towards others. And then also the things that are going on inside of us. So the things perhaps that he's mentioned, you know, mistreatment of the poor, the misuse of our tongues, the quarrels, the fighting. So these kinds of outward deeds, get rid of them. They have no place in God's presence, nor do those inner desires that have competing loyalties. We should be very familiar with the double-minded man by now. Right? He prays one way but lives another. He claims to have faith but shows no works. He blesses God but curses man. This kind of double-mindedness. James is saying that, that drawing near to God means shedding. Get rid of this double-mindedness in your heart. Repenting of all those loyalties that compete with our loyalty to God. Sinful anger, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and so forth. Now, it's true that Jesus purifies us. Titus 2.14 talks about Him purifying for Himself a people for His own possession. But this purifying work for us produces in us a desire to purify ourselves until we see Him face to face. There is a process here. Why would we want to hang on to anything that will not follow us into the celestial city? Thank you, B. Jack Morris, Chick-fil-A about two years ago, sharing that with me. Why would we want to take or hold on to anything 
that will not follow us into the new heavens and the new earth. Why would we want to hang on to anything that won't be part of our joy in the kingdom to come? We cannot coddle what the cross killed and God's presence will drive away in the new city. And when we live this way, here's the gracious promise right here, God will draw near to you. You see, one of the amazing things about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is that He makes Himself accessible to us. He comes near to us. He is unlike any other God among all the world, the religions of the world. This God draws near to us. Even though we are sinners and don't deserve to be in His holy presence, He sent Jesus to open a way for fellowship with Him, Hebrews 7 tells us. No matter what you've done or where you've been, you can draw near to God through Christ and God will draw near to you. He will be like the Father, right? Who, In Luke 15, it sees his prodigal son from afar. Prodigal son had squandered his father's inheritance and he sees him from a distance coming home. And it says that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. And with joy he clothed the son and sends the servants to prepare a feast for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That's the kind of God and father that we have. And it's God who draws near. This one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, this God draws near to us like a father. There's no greater gift, folks, than God's gift of himself. That doesn't mean we'll experience some heavenly vision or that our circumstances get any easier in this life, but it will mean that He will make His gracious presence and His saving purposes known to us in an intimate, all-satisfying way. He will make His gracious presence and saving purposes known to us in an intimate, all-satisfying way. It's like Psalm 145. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry, and He saves them. There's no greater gift than God being near. Finally, number three, we must be broken over sin while trusting God alone for salvation. We must be broken over sin while trusting God alone for salvation. Verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This kind of vocabulary comes straight from the prophets in Israel um, when they were calling Israel to repent before the day of God's judgment. Uh, The prophets themselves even exemplify this um, themselves when, for example, Jeremiah says, my eyes flow down with tears because people do not know your law. And, and they were supposed to be feeling the same thing, this, this great sorrow and, and 
turning away from sin. James is likewise calling the church to repentance. For the Christian, you know, there's much to rejoice in. I mean, forgiveness, a father of of love, a a family in the church, the unfailing march of the gospel to all peoples, the, the coming of the kingdom. I mean, there's a whole lot to rejoice in. And Paul is right to say, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. James's point is that sin is never something to rejoice in. It's never something to treat lightly. <clears throat> the world thinks little of sin. It gives hearty approval of it, Romans one thirty two says. It laughs over sin. It cracks jokes about sin. It justifies sin. It makes money off of sin. Living before God's face will mean the church responds differently to sin. We cannot treat sin lightly. We cannot try to justify our sin. Rather, we must see our sin for the horrific offense to God that it truly is, and we must grieve. One of the marks of conversion is godly sorrow over sin. It's like Psalm 32, verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. This is David talking about his grief over sin. He also begins that psalm with, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He's really happy about that. That happiness, that joy, that rejoicing always in the Lord won't come unless you see the gravity of your sin and what Christ did to take it away. I also couldn't help but think of of, uh, Isaiah 6 in this regard. Isaiah has just delivered six woes on the people of God. God's message of pending judgment has has shredded and exposed the people's wickedness. And then in chapter 6 of Isaiah, you're, you're waiting for that climactic seventh woe upon the people to be pronounced. And Isaiah sees the glory of God. He's sitting on his throne. And when Isaiah sees the Lord of hosts in all his glory... The presence of the Lord makes him undone. He's an upstanding guy, too. He's faithful. And yet, before the Lord, all of his sin is uncovered. All Isaiah can do is cover his mouth and pronounce the seventh woe upon himself. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He sees his des- that he's deserving of judgment. You will not think lightly of your sin when you're walking closely with the Holy One. Where there's no brokenness over our sin, there's likely no beholding of God's glory. That's not where we want to live. It will not go well for us at the judgment if we're not broken over sins now. And the answer he gives is to humble ourselves once again before the Lord. What does that look like? We get a perfect picture of it in the Gospel of Luke. 
And I can't help but think that this is where James is getting his words here. You'll see why in a minute. But in Luke chapter 18, verse, verse 9 to 14, Jesus tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And he says this, <clears throat> These two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. No pretending like you've got it all together before God. You get off your pedestal, you get on your face, you recognize that you're spiritually bankrupt, you've got nothing bef before God except your sin. You acknowledge your desperate need for God's help and you throw yourself upon His mercies. Lord, save me. Cleanse me. Change my heart. Help me follow you. And that should be our attitude not just at the beginning of our Christian life, but all throughout our Christian life. That humility will even work itself out in other ways, in other areas of our life, like some of the ones that James has already mentioned in his letter. For example, we will receive God's trials with patient endurance and steadfastness. Why? Because we know we don't deserve anything at all that's good. We can endure with patience when we are humbling ourselves before God. We will not boast in our wealth to save us, but in the Lord alone to save us. We will own our wrongdoings and not blame God for them. We will admit our need for wisdom and depend on God for prayer. We will be slow to speak and slow to anger because we know we've got a big sin problem too. We will show His mercy to the orphan and the widow and seek to do justice for the poor because God has been merciful to us. We will give our tongues wholly to the Lord to be used for building up others and not tearing them down. Who am I to curse others when I've received such kindness from God in the lifting of my curse through the death of Christ? And when this is our approach to the Lord... Jesus says this in Luke 18, verse 14, I tell you, this man, so the one who humbled himself, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For, and here's the connection to James, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Sounds like James. James sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's the promise. God will exalt you. That could mean that God will exalt you to some position in the present. But more likely, James is setting our sights once again on the future crown of life that he mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 12. He will lift us up, in other words, to reign forever with Jesus. For people who make much of themselves, the final judgment will be total humiliation. 
but the humble who admit their need before God will be exalted. How do we know that He'll be faithful to that promise? Because He already lifted up Jesus. He already lifted up Jesus. Jesus walked the path of humility before us, only He didn't humble Himself before the Lord because of His sins. He didn't have any sins. He humbled Himself before the Lord because of our sins. And in His humble estate, He received all that God had for Him, including the cross. He became obedient to the point of death, even death under the wrath of God for our sins. Therefore, Philippians 2 says that God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. We can be certain that God will exalt us at the proper time because He has already exalted our Savior who has gone before us. God will exalt you. That's the third promise here. These promises are incomparable with anything else this world could offer us. He makes the devil flee. He gives us himself by drawing near to us. And he will lift us up. He will exalt us to reign with Christ forever. You talk about more grace. There's all kinds of grace in those three promises. So let's live our days quorum Deo, before the face of God, and look forward to these promises. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this time together in your word. We pray that it has its appropriate effect in our lives and that you would be glorified through the fruit the Holy Spirit produces from it. Amen.